This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. The trick is don't think anything. Just do it. Really, it's about a clean slate. Start the new year, you know, wash off whatever I did last year. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Semi. That was a little sound of last year's polar bear plunge. This is the tradition in Vancouver. New Year's Day, time to take that icy plunge into the water. That's a real wake-up call for you on the first day of the year. But how did this tradition start anyway well i've got a fantastic guest for you to talk about that eve lazarus she's the author from vancouver of many books her most recent book is murder by milkshake an astonishing true story of arsenic adultery and a charismatic killer i really recommend her website where she does a wonderful job uh, documenting the history of the city eve um happy new year to you and thank thank you for coming on Thanks for having me. Uh, Happy New Year to you, Mike. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Let's start with the polar bear plunge. Let's talk (laughs) about the story behind that. This is is fascinating. Tell me about Vancouver theatre manager Peter Pantages and, and where this all started. Well, of course, as you mentioned, like he's related to the, the whole Pantages clan and the theatres there. But uh, he'd come to Vancouver in um, around 1919 and worked as an usher at the Pantages Theatre, the one that we kind of lost not long ago, and uh, worked with his cousins in uh, the Peter Pan Cafe on Granville Street, which was quite a going concern back then. Uh, but in 1920, he, he was a mad swimmer. He loved to swim. He swam every day, sometimes up to three times a day in English Bay, every day, no matter what wow. the weather was. And he talked um, a few of his friends, apparently, into to doing this plunge with him. And uh, from what I can gather on that first sort of 100 years ago today, he got about 10 of his friends to, to all go in and, and take the plunge. And, uh, and they did and and being an Australian, I, you know, I find it really difficult to get the appeal of this. But uh, at least I've got <laughs> decent weather today. Uh, but they've been doing it, which I find crazy, uh, in a great way every year for for a hundred years. That's just mind blowing. And uh, in English Bay, it's grown from you know this handful of people to. I was just looking at the the Vancouver City site uh, before. It's just it's got under two thousand registered today, wow. which is amazing. And I guess a whole bunch of others. So this is a real date in history today, 100 years ago today. That's amazing. What happened to him, Peter Pantages? Well, apparently he he swam for for many years and then ended up uh, dying in Hawaii in 1971 uh, after he'd been swimming, of course. And uh, um, they lived in Vancouver for for many years. They had a house um, just behind the Speedy on Kingsway. They're on East 13th Avenue and uh, lived there from... Oh, gee, 1925 to right up until the 70s, the family. And uh, so, yeah, they just a huge part of Vancouver history. And there's many, many grandchildren. I believe that the Lisa Pantages is the president this year, and she's, uh, I think, the granddaughter. Yeah, the, the family's still going strong there for sure. And 
I, I encourage people to check out your website, Eve, evelazarus.com, where you've got, you have these wonderfully documented stories of the city and its history. And there's a, there's a great picture of Peter Pantages there from the Vancouver archives. And there he is standing in his swimming shorts and, and he looks like he's around ankle deep in some snow there too. <laughs> well, I guess so. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's talk about some other great stories on on your website and some of the ones that are some of your favorites here. Now, here's one that jumped out at me that I didn't know about, Eve, and that is switching to driving on the right-hand side of the road. And this happened on January 1st, 1922, so another anniversary today. And people might be surprised that what was what was happening before that? We drive on the left side of the road before then? Yeah, um, wow. I found that very, you know, sort of comfortable being from Australia and still driving on the left side of yeah, the road. But right. I had no idea that um, uh, Vancouver also started this way. I guess it was a, the British rule. But uh, just done a bit of research onto that story. So it's 98 years ago today, which is pretty amazing. And um, uh, we were from what I can gather, the last city in North America to switch over to the right. Wow. So it sounds like they, they were really fighting it. And part of BC switched in 1921, but apparently it took Vancouver a lot longer because of the streetcars. And they all had to be refitted and, and changed over. But <laughs> I, I found this wonderful story in the province. And it came out just after this, I think it was January the 3rd, 1922. And I'll just read you a little bit because it was great. It was was prophesied that there would be a scene of wild confusion at all the greatest nerve centers of the traffic system. So they were predicting there would be utter chaos, you know, at six o'clock in the morning on on New Year's Day. And they decided to do it because the Monday, this was on a Sunday and the Monday was also a holiday. So they figured they'd have two days to get used to it. But when you look at these old photos from the archives of Vancouver, there's, you know, you see peak hour and there's like three cars on the street and they're all going in about, I imagine, I don't know how fast did cars go back then, probably 20 miles an hour or so it, it just, you wonder how chaotic it would have been. Okay, 6 a.m. was the official switchover time, January 1st, 1922. So as you said, Eve, 98 years ago today. And I guess people were predicting almost like, a, what, it was like almost like a, a Armageddon or people would be so confused <laughs> there'd be like accidents. And how did, how did it actually go? Were there any accidents or chaos? Well, apparently there was a few drunks from New Year's Eve oh. that uh, were going <laughs> going the wrong way on the streetcar because they sort of boarded thinking it was still <laughs> oh, okay. drunk side of the street. But uh, no one was killed as far as I can find so far. But I haven't okay. delved into this in a lot of detail yet. Okay, maybe a few uh, New Year's Eve uh, revelers ended up on the opposite side of town that they thought they were going to, I guess, so... Yeah, that that's amazing. It's it's it. I think a lot of people might not realize that uh, Vancouver drove on the other side of the road before that. How about the? Um, you've got a great list of ide- of stories here that you like. The World Belly Flop and Cannonball Diving Championship in the nineteen seventies. Tell me about that one, Eve. Ah, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. It okay. was invented um, by a actually former Vancouver Sun reporter, Tom Butler who turned into this um, very flamboyant PR guy. 
And he used to pull these outrageous stunts for publicity for his clients. And uh, back in the 70s, one of his clients was the Western Bayshore. And the Western Bayshore had just built this brand new pool, which I presume is still the same one that's there or, you know, an older edition of that one. But Tom was hired to publicize this pool. And this was back in 1974. And so he decided to create this competition and he, he came up with this idea that he would hold the World Belly Flop and Cannonball Diving Championship in the pool. Hmm. And it was just crazy. It, you had to be 250 pounds to, to enter it. <laughs> and you had to jump off a one-meter diving board and so Tom came up with this whole sort of slew of ideas. And, and what this contestant would have to do was perform two cannonballs, three spread eagle belly flops. And then the judges would pick a winner based on, you know, the amount of splash, the, the estimated weight of the, the water that was, you know, going everywhere around the pool and art history, uh, art history and uh, personality of the um, <laughs> contestants and it would just took off like mad and they ended up moving it to the coach house in, in North Vancouver and oh, yeah. um, it, it was publicized it was all over North America the judges came I think Billy Carter's brother came one year as one of the judges and NBC <laughs> gave it you know national North America wide coverage thousands of people would come out to this and um, I found this great quote from Butler. He died a few years back, but he um, was interviewed by the Globe and Mail, and he said, well, you know, what else can a 300-pound truck driver do and get to have NBC declare that he's champion of the United States <laughs> of America? <laughs> uh, it was just colossally funny. And when I ran this post on my blog, this yeah. uh, guy called Trevor had sent me a, a comment, and he said, that's my dad, because I had a oh. fantastic picture that John Dennison, a reporter that the province had taken, of, the, the, I think it was 76, and he had a hot air balloon over the, the coach house swimming pool, and this guy in, in mid-jump doing a belly flop from the, the hot air balloon into the pool with all these inspectors around. And, and <laughs> Trevor said, that was my dad. That was Kamikaze Bill jumping out and he got second that year and <laughs> so Trevor was only four at this time but he said it's something you know you're not going to forget ever. Eve let's talk a little bit about the Van Tan North Vancouver nudist camp and people may have heard of this nudist camp or colony but they may not know that it's been going on for so long and this has been there a long time. This was one of my favorites and I've lived in Lynn Valley for over 20 years now and you know for years and years I've heard rumors of a nudist camp at the top of Mountain Highway but I'd always thought it was kind of you know an urban myth and didn't really think much of it and then I guess it was a year or two ago I stumbled over a website for Vantan and you know, this nudist camp and I thought well that's pretty interesting so it had a number and I got in contact with them and a very nice PR guy invited me to, to spend an afternoon up there with them. And, you know, how could you resist, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I arranged to meet them. I drove up Mountain Highway. Like, this place is literally five minutes from my house. So, and never knew it was there. And, and uh, Daniel and Vanessa met me at the 
first locked gate because you've got that parking lot where all the hikers and the, the mountain bikers go now. And right. so this is just past that, if you know it. And mm. um, there's a locked gate and it's, you know, the bikers all go up there, but you can't drive and, unless you are part of this van tan. And anyway, we drove up a couple of kilometres up at this curvy sort of unpaved road with, you know, <laughs> alongside the mountain bikers and there was another locked gate and and then you, you sort of hit these several acres of cleared private property and it's just really beautiful. Mm. There's about 60 members that belong to this club and, you know, it's got a board of directors like any other non-profit society. It's just with this one, they, they meet naked. Right, and right. Yeah, which, of course, you would, right? Right. That's kind of required part of a nudist camp, I suppose. Well, I guess what I find interesting is just how long it's been there. How long has it been, how long has it been going there? Well, it was founded in 1939, wow. which I thought was just staggering. And, yeah. um, you know, it's just been quietly going on for, for decades and decades. And even before that, apparently they boarded off this um, club called the Millionaires Club, uh, which I haven't been able to find anything out about. I'm kind of intrigued by this and, you know, who belonged to it and stuff. But they'd had it before that and they used the land for clay pigeon shooting, apparently. But it's quite, you know, there's a bluff and, and everything. It's a beautiful view, but it's very hard to see up there, which makes it ideal, you know, for a nudist camp. Sure. Um, but, you know, <laughs> they have, um, as I said, about 60 members, and I'd say average age would be mid-50s, and, you know, the, the favourite uh, activity up there is gardening. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, they've got buildings, there's a pool there, and there's a sauna, and most of the buildings date back to the 40s and 50s, and, you know, as expected, it's kind of a summertime activity, and, you know, people are expected to, to put in some work up there and you know whatever needs to be done mostly gardening and um and so it's just a kind of neat vancouver institution yeah the van tan nudist club mm-hmm. you, you one of the things that you write about as well on your blog uh, eve is you have a, a real interest in heritage buildings heritage homes in in the city tell me about some of the last homes on richard street yeah, that sounded really fascinating. It was, uh, I was doing a bit of research onto that, and, and one of the names that kept popping up was Percy Linden. Mm. And I wish I'd seen this. I wish I'd been around to see this. But Percy Linden had, lived on the 1,000 block of Richards Street, probably um, almost across from where Richards on Richards used to be. Right. And he, um, he bought the house in the 50s, and you know it was all residential back then, and he rented it out for a while and came to live in there in the 1970 by himself and he made bird houses like literally dozens and dozens of these crazy bird houses and windmills and farmhouses and all sorts of things and, and just put them in the front yard and with his roses and it became this tourist attraction and tour buses would stop there and they'd get out and they'd take their photos and I was reading that one year he won this award for landscaping and he was totally stunned because he you know, told the people that he didn't put a second's planning into his garden, he just dug wherever he felt like it. You know, it's just this really eccentric person and uh, I've seen a couple of photos of the house and it, it was just quite amazing. And when, did that um, house, uh, when did that house uh, disappear? I believe it was the, the 90s. Mm-hmm. There was one holdout there, and it was a woman called uh, Linda Rupper. And she'd lived in okay. this little cottage since 1962. 
And she was offered, she knocked back $3 million for the cottage in this little block next to it in, um, in the 90s, I think, and ended up caving in about 2007 um, because she couldn't afford a property taxes. They'd gone up to oh. $36,000 <laughs> a year. Can you imagine? What, what else is new? Uh, you know, Eve, I, I encourage people to check out your site. You do a wonderful job documenting the colorful, colorful history of the city. And we could probably fill the whole show with some of the other stories that you've collected. But thank you for coming on today on New Year's Day. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun.